This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5pm in the city. And at the close, the FTSE 100 back into negative territory down by a half of 1% after last week's losses. A monster weekly loss on the S&P 500 last week, the biggest in about two years. A move lower of almost 6%. We rebound today by 1.11% of the S&P 500 up by around about 1.4% on the Dow. In the FX market, some sterling strength for you. Back through 142 at 142.35, up by 7 tenths of 1%. And as risk appetite starts to return just a little bit, Treasuries on offer yields up by just the basis point to 2.82%. I'm really pleased to say that after being separated for two weeks, Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet makes a comeback to the cable. We missed you, Charlie. I'm delighted to be back. Where have we, you been? Well, we had a couple of things. We had a time difference, so I had to do my show. I had to be on here in the United States. And then I was in London. I was in Berlin. I was in Amsterdam. And I'll tell you more about that uh, in a moment. So I was on holiday for a week in Europe. Okay. All well, right. You get to the top stories, and then I'm going to ask uh, questions you, about Amsterdam. I, I, I've got so much to tell you. What a great time, but i got so much to tell you. Let's begin with top business stories. President Trump ordering 60 Russian diplomats in the U.S. Uh, out. These are diplomats that the U.S. considers to be spies. They have been told to leave the country. The United States has also closed Russia's consulate in Seattle in response to the nerve agent attack on a former Russian spy in the U.K. The U.K. Labour Party, meanwhile, says it is seeking an amendment to key Brexit legislation to prevent Britain from leaving the European Union without a deal, as former Premier Tony Blair renews his own call for a second referendum. And according to new data from UK Finance, the prospect of more UK interest rate increases is making Britain's rush to lock in cheap home loans. It says banking industry numbers show that remortgage approvals increased almost 10% in February from a year earlier. Loans for house purchases have fallen. That is the latest from the new News desk. Glad to be back. Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie, Amsterdam, go. Yeah, well, Amsterdam, 15-year-old son. I tried to keep it as G-rated as possible. It is impossible in Amsterdam. So we just saw the canals. The good news is, from my perspective, from a parent's perspective, it was freezing cold. It was windy. So we barely got out of the hotel. You couldn't so, walk around. So what did he see that you didn't want him to see? Yeah, well, we got chips, but there was nothing else that I wanted him to see. You know, there was not a lot that I... There was a lot of empty windows, believe it or not. Empty windows. Windows. Uh, empty windows, windows being a euphemism. Where people for, would usually be standing. Where people would usually be standing. They weren't standing. So the they windows. had the red lights on, but they didn't have people there. Does that mean things are good? I have no idea. That that said, it was a weekday, so who knows. And then there were all of these British soccer fans. I think 60 football fans got arrested in Amsterdam. I don't know who was playing. That was big news while I was over there. Interesting. The, uh, yeah, and Berlin was part of it. I saw Matt Miller. I went over to London. I saw Mark Barton over there. What was your favorite? 
Uh, favorite was, well, I saw a great movie on the plane ride home, but uh, I went to an unbelievable water park in uh, in Berlin. Okay. London was fantastic because it got warmer. Walked along the Thames, went to a fantastic Gordon Ramsay restaurant, so that was it. But but the only down spot in London involved currencies, believe it or not. Why? And I wanted to share this with you, something known as dynamic currency conversion. Are you familiar with this concept? No, go Let's on. suppose that you go out for a wonderful meal. It, it, it It's, you know, 100 pounds, or you go to a hotel, it's 100 pounds. All of a sudden the bill comes in US dollars. Right. It has been converted for you, which sounds like not a bad thing if you're traveling on business. So what's it converted to? I assume, well, it, I assume it wasn't $142. Correct. So I brought along the receipt here, as you can I'm see, sure you something did. in there called margin, 3.5%. Yeah. And on top of that, too, it is not necessarily a favorable currency exchange rate for the individual that is suddenly billed in dollars. So I had that a couple of times, so I went online to check it all out. And, as you uh, do, as you uh, would. Yeah, and it, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's marketed as something that benefits restaurants and benefits yeah. uh, you know all sorts of places so all of a sudden they're building in extra commission but it's a wonderful revenue stream for them but not good for tourists Plimbo's Charlie Pellet more on Amsterdam I hope a little bit later um, appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you in about my absolute pleasure 26 minutes. minutes you got it thank you sir Joining me now, I'm pleased to say, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, and Michael Houston, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London. Marcus, I'll ask you a question I asked someone a little bit earlier. If I had told you everything you needed to know about markets last week, except for the price action, I just gave you all the news that had happened worldwide, all the economic data points, all of the quotes from the President of the United States, all of the quotes from China, and everything to do with trade, would you have guessed the market was down 6% in the United States? Um, well, I don't see what's not logical about it in the sense that um, I don't think it will stay down 6% over the course of the next few days as, as these things wind off. But uh, as an initial reaction, I think it was new news and a, and a uh, no-see-em event in the sense you didn't see that one coming quite so, so, so evidently. So, yeah, I, I don't have a particular problem with the price action. Michael Houston, does the, uh, the price action match the narrative? Yeah, I think it does because I don't think anyone really expected President Trump to really, um, I think, be as as aggressive as he was. But I think there was more to it than just the headline about trade tariffs. I think there was also um, the personnel changes that maybe gave the markets the perception that ultimately the trade narrative would get an awful lot more hawkish. Now, at the moment, at the moment, it does appear to be dialing back a bit. But you had Peter Navarro on Bloomberg earlier today. And um, while his tone was, I think, probably slightly more reasonable, I don't for one moment think that this is the end of it. Well, yeah, Marcus, I mean, the, the headline over the weekend, and I, and I spoke to Peter Navarro this morning, and they don't like to use the word trade war. And Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin is very keen to say we're close or hopeful to for reaching a truce with China. What does that look like? What is a truce with China? What can the Chinese do to help well, allay these given, concerns? They've been given a list by the US, and rather amusingly, I think, uh, of what it requires them to do to uh, assuage Trump's uh, domestic requirements, which is essentially what this is all about. Look, I, I think the, the Chinese thus far have held back. Um, they see this as probably more bluster and bravado than real, um, real teeth to it. And I think Whilst that's maybe good news, I think the what Trump is now doing is, is not going after anyone. He's focusing on China, certainly first, when he comes back on the Europeans, I think is the 
big story of later in the year. But for now, I don't think that there's um, as much to get excited about as perhaps the market initially first uh, thought. One of it, a lot of it's based on logic. Yeah, uh, there is some 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 reality here that needs to be sorted out. And two, you know, this is just the first soundings. We don't know what whether any reality will really follow. And for the stuff that seems to have been chosen, isn't really overly uh, sensitive stuff. It's stuff that either other side can live with. So I'm not. I don't think it's as much as the market likes to think it's all about. But the the risk profile for for global growth has it changed in your mind, Marcus? No, I just think it, it's going to be balanced. Um, no, not really. I think that I think. Uh, Global growth is set fair. The U.S. economy is certainly set fair. Uh, yeah. Perhaps too much so. Um, you could argue that there's too much stimulus going in, and when it you know, doesn't need it anymore, um, in the context of you know the tax tax cuts as well as uh, a few other things that have been mixing into, into the pot. So um, we're starting to see inflation forecasts. Even the Fed's now looking at 2.1, which is above their 2% target. So at some point, uh, it's come evident that the Powell Fed will let the economy run hot. But how hot? But for the moment, um, certainly, uh, you know, the risk is is more of uh, too much growth rather than not enough. And therefore, I think that's I'm not overly worried, therefore, about trade. And I think, you know, oil price shows you that as well, shows you that global growth is is, is set pretty strong. That's a good point. Marcus Ashworth sticking with us, Bloomberg Graphite economist. And Marcus Hewson will get his word in in about two minutes time. The chief market analyst for CMC Markets in London. Looking at the commodity price today, the story as follows. Brent, a 70 handle, a little bit softer today though, 65.62 on WTI. You're listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. In the United Kingdom, the Labour Party moving to prevent a no-deal Brexit. Yes, the Labour Party said it's seeking an amendment to key Brexit legislation to prevent Britain leaving the European Union without a deal. According to Keir Starmer, Labour's Brexit spokesman, if Parliament rejects the Prime Minister's deal that cannot give licence to her or the extreme Brexiteers in her party to allow the UK to crash out without an agreement. Michael Houston, is that why we saw a bit of a bid in Sterling today? Well, on that basis, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, what's he actually trying to do here? Because ultimately, if they I'm vote, asking you guys. You're all over they, the Brexit stuff. Yeah, if they vote it down, what then? Does that mean that we stay in the customs union and the single market? No, it means we leave without a deal. We're leaving on the 19th of March, no, the 29th, the end of March next year. OK, we've got a transition deal, Yeah. but it doesn't change the overall destination, it just makes it that much more difficult. Marcus Ashworth? Well, um, obviously I'm completely politically impartial, so I couldn't of possibly course. comment. But what a load of absolute rubbish. Uh, and, it, you know, how can you negotiate a deal on that on that sort of behalf? But, you know, somehow Labour has been able to get away with this sort of stuff and continues to get out with uh, utterly logical statements and uh, continues to make um, everyone's life, you know, more complicated than it needs to be. And, uh, but they skillfully are getting away with it now the tide's politically turned against them a couple of instances the last few uh or last week or so um but uh i'd be interested to see whether or not their their poll showings drop and whether this sort of type of um 
uh, dare I say, have your cake and eat it type approach to uh, mucking around with, do you want this, do you want that, and then, and then you know, you can't do it, you're not allowed to leave that deal. I mean, what, what's that all about? Michael? Yeah, I think this is political opportunism on the behalf of Labour Party. Mark has touched upon it. Their poll ratings are in decline simply because I think there's concern about the leadership at the top of the party. I'm not going to go into any great detail in that because ultimately it's outside of our remit. Yeah. But um, for me, I think this still this still could be very problematic for certain certain constituencies, northern constituencies, who voted to leave. And ultimately, if you stay in the customs union and you stay in the single market, then ultimately you don't have any control over immigration. These problems are still very much intractable in terms of how the deal is negotiated. In my so, so what, Michael Hewson, are the foundations for a stronger pound at the moment? A weaker dollar. Bottom line, nothing else? Nothing else, because if you look at euro sterling, it's unchanged on the day. It's it's up against the dollar, seven-tenths seven of 1%, same as the euro. Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've tested the downside, we've tested the upside. We are at the lower end of the recent range euro sterling, but we're still within the recent range that we've been in for the last three to six months. So I think markets are reading way too much into it. Would you say the same thing, Marcus? Yes, absolutely. The Bank of England, though, do they not factor into this, the prospect for higher interest rates, guys? Marcus? <coughs> Um, well, I mean, look, that has been quite well uh, flagged now. Though I, I, I interesting to note um, a couple of articles cut out today where people are starting to. Oh, look, my opinion I wrote was that the Carney made it very clear he wasn't going to hold the market's hand, and yeah. I think he they put it in and sufficient to say that they are more than likely they're going to hike in May. And to my mind, I think that's what they did exactly what they had they they had to do. However, some people are flagging out that they didn't signaling quite such um, firm language they did last September before they hiked in November. So read into that what you want to. Do you, do you believe what Carney said You know, a month or two ago, they're not going to hold their hand and therefore... Do we believe Carney now? Is that a thing, Marcus? I feel no, like it's more no, of a thing no. than it was a few years ago. No, I'm more inclined go. oh. to believe it now. <laughs> You're such a generous man. <laughs> oh, I am, seriously, because the mathematics on the MPC will make it very difficult for it to push back against it. No quarter must be given. Uh, no, I, I, I think he's got a, a, a much more coordinated and um, a logical line coming from, from everyone. On, they're all seeing all the same strong sheets. Yeah. I think even the 7-2 vote doesn't mean... That probably helps his cause because it shows the direction of travel. Marcus Ashworth, great to have you with me. Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. And to Michael Hewson, great to catch up, mate. Chief Market Analyst at CMC Markets in London. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5.18 in the city. A little bit earlier here in New York, I had the opportunity to catch up with the CEO of Saudi Aramco, who defended the prospects for an initial public offering of the giant oil company in the face of what I've got to say is some serious investor scepticism and awareness of many people that perhaps this might not just happen at all. It's no, not a matter of when, but a matter of if. Take a listen to what he had to say when I put those questions to him. There is a significant increase in the U.S. production. Yes. So when there is a significant increase in the U.S. production, uh, that uh, amount of import will go from somewhere. 
that increase in internal production, it means a reduction from current suppliers to the U.S. So we got our share and we'll continue, as I said, monitor the case whenever there is a need for higher demand. Uh, in the U.S. will continue to avail it to, this is an important market for us. That's why uh, we are looking at expanding our footprint. You know, we have a refinery that has more than 600,000 barrels of capacity here, and we're looking at expanding it. So it shows the interest to uh, maintain our presence in the U.S. and grow that uh, presence. Do you see any supply gaps opening up in the next several years in the United States? Are you as optimistic on this shale story? as many other people are? I think the shale will continue to grow, uh, not linear growth that others are predicting because uh, our analysis showed that, you know, when you will continue to focus on the sweet spots of, for shale oil, that will give you additional supply. But don't forget shale oil, the decline is 70% in the first year, almost 70%. So you will need to uh, continually add more capitals to maintain uh, the supply and grow that supply from within uh, the U.S. Uh, ultimately, with time, you will run out of sweet spots and you need to uh, venture to other less uh, uh, promising uh, in terms of uh, prospects within the shale oil. That will increase the capital and also increase the decline. Uh, ultimately, it will reach a point where the growth will plateau, and uh, that will take a couple of years, of course. And then uh, there will be uh, a decline, because as I said, that decline would require huge capital just to maintain uh, the supply. And would you be willing to invest in upstream capacity now to meet that supply gap in the future? Well, uh, as I said, for us, our strategy in, when it comes to our uh, upstream will continue to strengthen our upstream and continue to be the most reliable supplier of crude oil. Our strategy is also to reduce our carbon emission. That's why you'll find out we are working in a lot of technologies to turn CO2 to useful products like polyurethane, carbon capture and sequestrations, working with car manufacturer to avail engine that produce less carbon, more efficient, and better fuel formulation for less emissions. So there is a lot of working to reduce our carbon footprint while expanding and, and growing our uh, upstream when talking about El gas in particular. So uh, oil will continue to meet El, el Col on Saudi Aramco. Uh, the growth that we are seeing mainly in gas, and uh, in, in, in refining and petrochemicals because we are trying to integrate and add value to our, uh, for each barrel that we produce. I want to wrap up with two questions about the future, the short-term future and the much longer term. In the short term, when this IPO roadshow gets underway in the future, what do you think investors are going to be most surprised about when they really get the transparency of the company you run that they want? As I said, we are uh, excited about sharing a lot of information about the company. They will be, as I said, there is a lot of information about uh, the technology and how much technology helps Saudi Aramco. You see, uh, the carbon emissions is not related only to uh, 
the type of crude or the quality of reservoirs. That's why we produce more. It's the amount of technology that we are using also to capitalize on the pressure downhole to push the barrels to the surface and reduce water and gas ingress into the oil. So all of these technologies help us to reduce our carbon emissions. The investors, when they see the data, they will not see the lowest cost only. Leadership in safety, leadership in environment, leadership in technology. And cost. And cost, of course, that goes without saying. <laughs> but also uh, in terms of carbon intensity. So uh, our barrel, when it comes to carbon emissions, is, is one of the best. In 2030, the Crown Prince has his big vision for 2030. I'm trying to work out still what Saudi Aramco looks like in 2030. What is Saudi Aramco in 2030? I think it will be you know, more integrated. Uh, you, you, right now, today, the upstream and downstream is not balanced. When I talk about downstream, I'm talking about refining and petrochemicals and loops and all of that. You will see more integrations. You will see more of our barrels instead of going to uh, refineries, will be going to petrochemicals. So I think you heard about our investment lately with SAVIC on 45% conversion. We're working on technologies to convert 70% of the barrel to petrochemical because there is much more growth into the petrochemical. So you'll see more integration, more shifting downstream, and adding more value to the barrel we produce through that integration into refining petrochemicals, marketing, and loops, of course. Can we expect downstream capacity to, to meet upstream capacity at some point in the future? It, if it doesn't meet it, it will be very close. 8 to 10, with a maximum sustained capacity of 12 million, that's very close to our capacity. But we have to do the best things based on, you know, uh, What's, uh, what are the markets that are available for us for investment? What is the strategic fit for each investment that we are looking at in different countries? All of these we need to take into consideration uh, and how can we add value for each barrel we produce. That was the Saudi Aramco CEO, Amin Nasser. You can catch the full interview in its entirety on Bloomberg.com. He says the venue and the timing is for the government to decide. Don't forget, this is a very complex process. Aramco's size and complexities is something that requires time. I'm next on the program. We'll bring it here to the United States and get you up to speed on the politics, the world of trade and the prospect for protectionism. That's next. You're listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Ferrell on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. At the close, the FTSE 100 down by about a half of 1%, down last week by over 3%, call it 3.3% there and thereabouts. In the United States, after an ugly week last week with losses of 6%, here's the bounce back. The S&P 500 up 1.5%, the Dow Jones up by 1.77%. In the FX market... Dollar weakness, the story across the board in G10. Cable looks like this, back through 142 at 142.28, up by about 7 tenths of 1%, call it 0.67 to be precise. And in the bond market, the story as follows in Treasuries, yields coming up by about two basis points at 283 after receiving a little bit of a safety bid through much of last week's sell-off. So that's the story in global markets. I'm really pleased to say that Charlie Pellet, not one appearance, but two appearances. Without him for the last two weeks, we didn't 
didn't know what to do, Charlie. We didn't do news. Oh, I we am just so, didn't do the news. I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that because the there's the hour. so much going on. Get, I'm back get me up to speed. Better than ever. Here's what's going on. Let us begin with President Trump. He has ordered 60 Russian diplomats that the U.S. considers to be spies to leave the country. He has also closed Russia's consulate in Seattle in response to the nerve agent attack on a former Russian spy in the U.K. as European allies and Canada take similar measures. The UK Labour Party says it is seeking an amendment to key Brexit legislation to prevent Britain leaving the European Union without a deal, as former Premier Tony Blair renews his own call for a second referendum. And according to new data from UK Finance, the prospect of more UK interest rate increases is making Britain's rush to lock in cheap home loans. It says banking industry numbers show that remortgage approvals increased almost 10% in February from a year earlier. Latest from the news desk, I'm thrilled to be back. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Amsterdam. Amsterdam with a 15-year-old son. What the heck do you think I'm going to be doing no, in just, Amsterdam? I always wanted to know what you kept him away from. Uh, well, there's a lot going on in Amsterdam. A lot because to not see. Because I remember I went when I was 13, uh, yeah, 14. As part of a, was, a, a football was, tour, right? Uh, on a football tour, and it was a real culture shock. Well, went, there a bo- went there a boy, came home a man. I, I came, oh, came man. back a scared boy. <laughs> I came back a scared boy, let me tell you. It yeah. was a culture shock for me. Yeah, it was, it was really cold when we were over there, so there was a lot... Shut down. We spent right. our times doing canal tours and seeing, you know, not other culture things. shock in a bad way, by the way. Just very, very liberal, and not something I was used to. Unbelievably liberal. You know, it, yes, unbelievably yeah. liberal. Yeah. That's the polite way of putting it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. It is. But on the other hand, it's a city that was, works. Was the highlight of your trip really a movie on the plane? No, no, no. It was a great movie though. Bad Mom's Christmas. I laughed. Was it really? I, good? It was. It was hilarious. Yeah. I I cried. I who, laughed who so much. It was great. Uh, I fly. I flew. I, I flew on Delta. And, Any uh, good? Uh, it was it was actually quite good because here's what happened. I also sprung for the upgrade to get uh, comfort class seats, and that wasn't a lot of money, but well worth it. Right. Um, and and can I just share one other great story? I don't know how much you reported on this last week around here, but it was a big story in the UK when I was there. British passports. Did you do that story at all? Um, they're going to be blue, and they're going to be made in France. And they're going to be made in France. That's <laughs> the punchline. Which is, which is outrageous. <laughs> just outrageous. Why? People, why? 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 Lowest not, price. Honestly, it's not outrageous. I just saw so many clips of people saying it was. Was outrageous. In fact, a friend of mine visited um, the UK from America, went over to the UK, and he sent me pictures of the front page of the Daily Mail. The outrage, and I was trying to work out what was more ridiculous right now: the outrage of US politics or UK politics. Well, the funniest thing about the whole the whole situation is that the UK firm that's lost the contract is called Delarue. Right, it's got, a, it's got a French name anyway, right? So right. you go back far enough. But but then on the other hand, too, you you look at it from the government's perspective. If people found out how much was being spent and they could have saved money by taking it somewhere else, then you'd be blasting the government for, quote, yeah, look, wasting look, money. Look, look, look. If we're all about free markets, and if that's what Brexit is really about, getting access to other markets and bringing down trade barriers worldwide, then I'm sorry. If the government can save money, this isn't about, it's either about trade or it's about nationalism. And it can't be about both. I'm told that this is about opening up trade to the world. And ultimately, if you're going to have a contract for passports, then they should be made in the cheapest place, shouldn't they? One would think so, but it's one of those things, I think, where what you what you say in public, what you, why you voted for, for Brexit, 
and yeah. you know what the reason you did in the sort of the deep dark recesses of your heart they may not be exactly yeah the same. Speak, speaking of why you voted for brexit i also had a chance to to have uh, well, a just meal. for the record yeah. no one's disclosing their vote here charlie <laughs> i know i know i know i know but i'm about to disclose my aunt's vote because i visited her she lives in barnum you know about an hour's train ride south of london right and 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 she you know i asked her which way she voted she said she voted for brexit and she was not angry she was mystified as to why it was taking so long and I, <laughs> I, I i felt like you know she thought she was going to vote today and be out tomorrow and i, I wanted that, to explain that if you've been through a divorce or you've been through a, a real estate purchase it takes a little that time sums up the mood of the country they, they aren't regretful about the decision that was made the people that did vote they're regretful about how badly it's been handled it's not as if they want to go back to the polls, and I can't speak for everybody, of course, but you just hear from the majority of people almost that I hear from that voted to leave. It's not that they want to go back to the polls. They're not disappointed by the result. They're still happy with the result. They're just ha unhappy with the outcome driven by this government. Right. So I, I just think the prime minister and this government, it's lose-lose. I, I just don't see let how me, they Let win. me suggest that if and when they actually do get to leave the European Union, it's not going to be a question of why did it take so long. Yeah. I think the question is, how did you get it done so quickly, given everything that's involved and, and all that has to be given, unwound? Given the multi-decade approach that Correct. took to, to building up this relationship. Right. Charlie, it's been great it's to my have pleasure, you back. Sir. Really, Thanks. I have missed you. Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet back with us, and I'm hopeful that he'll be with us through the week as well. Yes. Really interesting conversation, Remain, I had earlier with the Saudi Aramco CEO. Mm -hmm. I, I don't get it. I, I just don't get how the return profile of this company is going to be big enough to really bring the investor appetite. And I wasn't entirely convinced walking away from the interview either. Uh, well, I wasn't either. I, I, I watched your interview or the excerpts of the interview that have been airing. And, you know, look, there was a lot of enthusiasm, I think, for this when they first announced it because of the promise of what it could be. But once you get into the details of not only what this company is, but, you know, its ties, uh, how tied it is to uh, the government policies and economic policies going on over there, uh, you know, other than maybe a trophy holding, I'm not really sure uh, why too many people would pile into this. Cameron? But. Yeah, these landmark IPOs never seem to end particularly well for the people who buy them. Right, uh, as we were talking about yeah. uh, at the break, Glencore wasn't sell. Didn't Glencore didn't go public because they thought that the insider it, was the seller. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Blackstone, uh, when it came to P private equity, Goldman, even going yeah. back to the late nineties, when the smart guys are selling you a share, uh, or even hedge funds, when hedge funds went public, like Fortress or GLG, in the UK, people who bought yeah. people who bought GLG stock didn't. Uh, didn't make out quite as well as the people who sold GLG stock. Uh, and that's that's a typical phenomenon with these sorts of setups. So That's, that's the question I started with, Remain, to, to Amin Nasser, the CEO of Saudi Aramco. I said, you know, the, the Saudis themselves are diversifying away from oil. Yeah, The, the Norwegians are cutting oil risk. The, the, Why be bullish oil right now? I, I don't know. but what, And what are you getting out of this? I mean, you're getting what would amount to a relatively small stake. Uh, you're not going to have a tremendous amount of say. You're going to have a stock that's that's linked uh, pretty directly to oil prices uh, at a time, as you say, when, uh, you know, most countries are looking for a way to sort of at least uh, find other options uh, yeah. to to fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, as a long term bet, I'm, I'm not sure it's a place that uh, they're going to attract enough attention. Uh, it's going to, to need this work. some real yield. That's mm -hmm. for sure, because Shell are offering six percent yield on the stock right now and the shell dividend i didn't know this until the team in Blo bloomberg in london had told me i didn't know the shell dividend had not been cut since world war ii 
and I learned that over the weekend. Oh. Oh. There's nice a stat, stat. There's there a stat for you. Oh. For the City of London, you listen to The Cable, Remain Bostick and Cameron Christ will be sticking with me. We'll run you through some of the latest action in the United States. That's coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio with me in the studio today. I'm pleased to say it's Remain Bostick, Bloomberg's very own, alongside Bloomberg's Cameron Christ. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, he says he's hopeful, cautiously hopeful, we'll reach an agreement, the United States that is, with China. We're having very productive conversations with them, Mnuchin told Fox News Sunday. Uh, Remain, have we got an idea of what a truce looks like? What is an agreement? What can the Chinese do? that will help the United States and make them sit back and say, OK, that's enough. Well, I don't know about from the Chinese perspective, but from the U.S. perspective, they're clearly looking for some sort of unilateral trade deal, which technically we already sort of had by default. But, uh, you know, they obviously want it to be on different terms and on better terms. And, you know, maybe the Chinese will will appease uh, the Trump administration. But right now, I mean, what we've heard, you know, this one comment out of Mnuchin, we've heard from Navarro uh, earlier this morning, you know, the White House trade main White House uh, uh, advisor on trade. And, uh, you know, at least we know that countries are trying to talk to the U.S. about this and trying to sort of tamp down the tensions. Uh, if we get there, uh, that would certainly be good for some of the overhang that's been put on this market and over and on the economy since uh, Trump started beating this drum a little bit harder at the start of this month. But, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put too much stock in just a single interview from either one of those folks. <laughs> Cameron. Well, presumably there's some back channel communication going on. Or even, Clearly, even, that's, that's, even, what Peter, even that's, that's what Peter Navarro said to me this morning. I'm just not a, a sure what, aware what it's going to achieve at this point. Well, listen, uh, the Chinese know that they've been sort of free riding on the global international trade regime they absolutely for, have for been, years, yeah. right? So if they are willing to sort of concede that point and to make a few adjustments to their to their trade policies, it could be a case where they're still imposing more shall we say, tariffs and more protectionist measures than the average bear, as but what, it were. But wasn't, haven't we had these type of back-channel talks through the past you know, three or four administrations? And you know, the Chinese right. have always conceded this. The question is, what, well, what are I, they actually going to give I think, up? I think yeah. in fairness yeah. to Trump, he's the first one that's basically said enough's enough. Mm. Um, because he, as we know, he's not a diplomat. Uh, uh, no. And he, he's not... He's not a politician in every sense of, 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 and rightly, of the word, and I think. rightly so on this occasion. Oh, yeah. On this I, I, specific issue, rightly so. But I, the, the conversation I had with Peter Navarro earlier, Cameron, he just kept wanting to justify why there was a problem. And, and I tried to say to him, Dr. Navarro, we can all agree there is a problem. The debate is about the approach. Mm -hmm. not well, about I, I mean, can, can, can we all agree? Because I think if you look at the mainstream academic economists, yeah. they would generally say, well, free trade is good in and of, it, in and of itself, and tariffs are bad. In, uh, in, assuming in what we have now is free trade, well, and, and you and I can sit here in about five seconds flat and say it's not. Well, quite. So where it becomes problematic and where I think there isn't a consensus is if one side has erected these barriers, whether it's tariffs or whether it's theft of intellectual property or... Uh, refusing to allow foreigners to have a majority stake in any domestic uh, in any domestic firm then how do you how do you equate that on the other side and to date 
U.S. administrations and much of the West, in fairness, have basically said, well, cheap stuff is better for us than than a fight. Uh, and Trump has taken the decision, well, maybe we've had enough cheap stuff. Uh, and and let's, let's face it, while the central banks are saying on the one hand, well, yes, we're worried about protectionism, they're also <laughs> saying, well, we've, we're also worried about prices being too low. So in a a sense, but is a solution to all this actually going to end up being freer trade or are we just going to negotiate? Okay, we sell a few more GMs over there or, you know, JP Morgan. gets. Well, they're very focused on the tariffs for for car imports. Mm -hmm. And I think what's intriguing about that is so many of the manufacturers have made significant investments in China now Mm -hmm. to produce cars there. So I see it as quite unlikely that even if you reduce that tariff, that all of a sudden car numbers into China are going to explode because... So much of it is made there now because of the tariffs that have been in place for so long. Uh, To your point, Romain, yes, you might be able to tweak a few things, but it's going to take a long, long time to get the results that they want. And President Trump might not be President Trump by the time that comes around. Even in seven years, it might take ten to get the kind of results he would like to see. Romain's going to stick with us, Cameron as well. Next up on the programme, we'll run you through the week ahead and get their thoughts on markets. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. The market's whippy last week and bouncing back today. The story in the week ahead. If you're expecting to see payrolls Friday, you have got to wait until next week. It is not happening Today It's going to be on Friday, rather. It is going to happen next Friday. In terms of the data in the United States that you need to look out for, March 29th is going to be a big day for core PCE and initial jobless claims. So look out for that, personal income and personal spending as well. We had the big three in the UK last week. I said the big three. I'm talking about retail sales, inflation and employment numbers as well. So the data in the UK, a little bit light. What we will get is a final reading for fourth quarter GDP also on March 29th. So that is Thursday. And bear in mind, no data Friday, markets closed. So a shortened trading week in the UK this week and next week with markets closed on bank holiday Monday as well for the four day Easter weekend. With me today, I'm really pleased to say, is Cameron Christ, macro strategist for Bloomberg and Romain Bostic, editor of our Bloomberg Top Live blog. Guys, just in terms of the markets, I'm trying to get my head around what we've seen in the last week. And something that Eric Nielsen of Unicredit said has kind of stuck with me over the last couple of days, the last 24 hours, Cameron. And it was not that the fundamentals that have changed, but the the risk profile, the risk profile around global growth has adjusted somewhat. The prospect for growth to accelerate more from here is diminished. And the prospect that policy tailwinds become policy headwinds has increased. And while central banks won't respond to that immediately, what we will see is markets adjust, and, and I guess to some extent markets are adjusting. Yeah, I mean, given where we were in terms of the growth trajectory a few months ago, it was going to be very, very difficult for the global economy to accelerate further without overheating. And overheating is really what you have to worry about because then policymakers will slam on the brakes. And you know, if you've ever, if you've ever skied downhill, it, it's very difficult. It's much easier to stop 
to come to a controlled stop if you're kind of on the bunny slope or on the green slope than yep. if you're, you know, bombing down a uh, As a, a man block. who's fractured his sternum on the slopes before. Oh, as a man I, who's, I, I as a man who's torn his ACL there we go. going <laughs> off piste in France. I, I, uh, yeah, Airlift, you, airlifted, I'm going to up you. Airlifted. Okay, I just got I just got the stretcher <laughs> down, the, down the mountain myself. Um, and, you know, anyhow, so... So from that perspective, I think it was always going to be a case of you, you were going to slow down. And a lot of these PMI surveys are, in fact, mean reverting. I think it's probably premature to talk about headwinds in terms of policy becoming restrictive or even close to restrictive. That having been said, last year, our volatility was too low. Uh, point blank, it was too low. It's just not normal to go up in a, in a straight line. It's like going, going on the motorway and having no police and no other cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can just shoot straight higher to where you want to go, and you get there in sort of record time. The reality for most of us is when we drive, you get caught in traffic, stop, start, and it takes a you know, much more circuitous route. And that's really what market volatility is. It doesn't necessarily deter you from your ultimate destination. It just means that the path there becomes a little more problematic. Remain, I do want to get your thoughts on what's happened with volatility. What we had was a technical blow-up about a month ago, mm -hmm. when these short volatility products blew up. Off the back of a fundamental event, we had a decent wage growth labor market report in the United States, which pushed up yields and shook up everything, and the VIX exploded, and ultimately these short-term vol products exploded as well. To some extent, it was fundamental, but mostly it was a technical blow-up of the VIX. What interests me, and I will get to my point, Romain, bear with me. <laughs> what interests me is why it's taken so long to clear out and find a new level. Why are we jumping around still quite aggressively on the VIX? Why are we struggling to find a new level well, of volatility? Well, because I think you need a springboard here, right? I mean, if, if you want to just stick with Cameron's metaphor here about, about being on the highway there, uh, you, know, you know, the question is sort of what's the next gas station that we arrive at that's going to sort of provide a little bit of extra fuel here? I, I don't really buy into the story of headwinds. I'm kind of with Cameron on that. But I do buy into this idea that uh, the tailwinds that we had are – are either not there or people are, aren't as certain about them as they were a few months back. So you had a lot of these trades unwind, but it's not really so much about, you know, when's this going to finish? I think it's when and work, when you're going to get these people to come back into the market and sort of re-up for whatever the next leg might be. Uh, you yeah. know, how do you look at this market and make a, a determination long term that we're going to at least rocket back up to some of the levels that we saw at the start of the year? Would that explain the volatility of volatility right now, Cameron? Well, again, I, I think the, the volatility was so low last year that it encouraged what I, many people, I think including myself, would say was kind of stupid behavior in terms of volatility selling. So as that unwinds, that naturally begets a sort of higher vol of vol, if you were. But I think Roman's right in the sense that there is this sort of uncertainty. And, and when you when as a market observer, as a market participant, you see say the stock market respond to sort of Trump headlines that they blithely ignored last year, that sort of influences your perception about the, the near-term return stream. If you're, a, if you're a pension investor and you're looking three years out, yeah. it's kind of irrelevant. Uh, should be. It should be. Or even one year out, it, it should be broadly irrelevant. But the shorter your time horizon, the, the more relevant and the more visceral the impact of, this, of these oscillations. So, Romain, let me finish up by asking the following question, and perhaps I'll have enough time to get to both of you. If I shut up, what has changed the reaction function of investors to this administration or the reaction function of this administration to markets? I think it's the reaction function to this administration. 
And, and and for good reasons. I mean, the reaction for the first year, I mean, we really didn't have these types of trade tensions because, I mean, Trump talked about it a lot, but there wasn't actual action. Most of the action he took in the first year of his presidency was relatively market friendly, relatively business friendly. He's now, for whatever reason, in this new phase where he's focusing on things that aren't as market friendly. Uh, he may think they're the right things to do, but for right now, the market's having a hard time getting its arms around how it should price that in. Cameron? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would I wouldn't even go so far as to say market friendly. I would just say it was a domestic focus because we had the sort of the failed healthcare yeah. fandango and whether yeah. that was going to yeah. be market right. friendly yeah. or not, who knows? Right? <laughs> you remember those <laughs> right. days? If, well, it market- doesn't, if it doesn't pass, there's going to be trouble and the market's going to crash, and it never did. So anyway, you know, you had the dollar comments in January at Davos, followed by these tariffs. So he's clearly pivoted towards a more externally focused. Uh, policy. Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist for Bloomberg, alongside Romain Bostig, editor of Art. Bloomberg Top Live blog. Gents, great to catch up with you as we begin a new trading week. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio.